Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. Wartime Macau was a whole mix of nationalities and communities. Macau, as Portuguese territory, was neutral, but it still had German and Japanese consulates, resistance groups, police, spies, smugglers and refugees. British author Paul French has written extensively on Shanghai and Beijing and in his latest novel, Strangers on the Prior, a tale of refugees and resistance in wartime Macau. He turns his attention to the Jewish, often young women who travelled from the Shanghai ghetto to Macau and then tried to move on from there. Using a composite lead woman character, he uses extensive research, records and letters to tell her story. My research mostly focuses on Shanghai, where I lived for a long time, and I've always taken a particular interest in the Jewish refugee situation there. And I've written about it before. And I go through a lot of records and I spend a lot of time reading people's memoirs and, and looking at what they have to say about the time they were there and the official records. And what struck me was that there were a number of people, not a large number, probably I'd say about 180, 200, who after finding some sort of sanctuary in Shanghai from Europe, decided to move on and um, went to Macau. And, and I also noticed that the vast majority of them, about 80%, were young women under kind of 24. And I sort of thought that was interesting, and I wondered why that was. And I wondered what happened to them once they got to Macau and, and what the rationale for that decision was. So I decided to follow their trail. There were some Jewish refugees who had made their way to Hong Kong. And, of course, in the run-up to... Christmas 1941 and the fall of Hong Kong, a few of those did come as part of the general exodus of allied nationals, particularly British, across from Hong Kong to Macau. And there was also several who came from the small Jewish refugee community that found its way to Manila in the Philippines. And, and as that fell under Japanese control, some of those made their way to Macau as well. Now, Strangers on the Prior, a tale of refugees and resistance in wartime Macau, actually follows the fate of one woman. So is she representative of these young women or you actually found the papers of her? No, she is a composite character. I mean, I get to that point sometimes in a lot of my work where I have enough information to do a kind of, you know, full book, 300 and 350 pages book. And sometimes I don't. And it gets a bit frustrating because I just think if I got it out there, perhaps people would, would tell me more information that I don't know. You know, it's in their head or in their attic or it's in their parents' memory or grandparents' memory. So I thought with this one I'd try and make a composite character of many of the different experiences, the snippets of experiences that I've managed to get and make it into one person in order to tell that story, hopefully in a quite compelling way. So, yes, she is a composite character. But as I say, the vast majority were young women and she is a young woman and I think the reason for that was multiple really but I think many of them had lost their parents in the tuberculosis epidemic that swept through Shanghai in 1940 and 1941 and disproportionately affected the Jewish refugee community some of the older people and also some of their immune systems were a bit weaker so a lot of people seem to have been orphaned at that time and perhaps they didn't want to stay on in Shanghai. We, we forget now, knowing the end of the story, that the Jews were relatively safe in Shanghai. We forget, of course, that that wasn't immediately apparent at the time. And we also forget that for a lot of younger people, particularly young men and women, Shanghai was quite boring for them. They were stuck within quite rigid conventions and many of them did want to leave.
So with this one woman, and I agree, I mean, uh, even though you say it's, it's a composite character, it is a fascinating read as you go through. And uh, she's uh, coming from Shanghai down to Macau and uh, just trusting, I suppose, in a way that is this, uh, you know, that they've heard in Shanghai that uh, Macau is neutral and is regarded as, as more of a safe haven. Well, there are a number of reasons. Many of them, I think, wanted to find a more permanent safe haven, which would mostly be the UK or the United States. And they believed that if you could get to Lisbon, neutral Lisbon, the capital of Portugal, there were boats and planes that were going to the UK and America and that you could buy or apply for refugee status and citizenship. And that was all certainly true. And I think, you know, in the sort of romanticization of the Shanghai Jewish ghetto, we, we, you know, when you actually dig deep and talk to a lot of people and read their memoirs, and letters, you kind of work out that, you know, they're not overly happy there. China is an extremely strange place. Um, they're often feeling quite constrained in their lives there, as if this is just the end of it and nothing's going to happen. And that, you know, they really should push on and try and find something more permanent. I don't think anyone ever felt that Shanghai or China would be a permanent place to stay. And so they wanted to push on and go somewhere else. And Macau is a neutral country, and there were many rumors about ships sailing from Macau back to Europe, um, they felt that this might be a, a sort of road to safety, a route to some sort of sanctuary. I mean, it turned out very different because, of course, the ships weren't sailing. And there were so many rumours. I mean, I saw letters and then, I, I, you know, in the course of doing this, and, and as, as you know, I did it first for a, as a short story for the Hong Kong journal, literary journal, Char, and then we did it with the, as a... Um, a four-part podcast for RTHK, and I sort of keep expanding it because people keep contacting me. And someone said to me, you know, my mother was in Macau, and um, she just described it as hope, hope that she could get to somewhere where she could sort of restart her life and have something more serious. But rumours were flying all the time, and the rumours were everything from there were blockade runners, which were the ships that sailed from Asia to Europe during the war trying to avoid the submarines, to uh, there may be freighters going down to Australia or to Papua New Guinea. Uh, there, there were so many different rumors flying around that you could get to French Indochina and there would be a route to safety perhaps that way. I, there were rumors flying around all the time, but on the most part, people were just kind of stuck in Macau. And uh, with this, as you say, this composite character, I mean, you hear about, you know, how people are trying to pawn their goods in order, because this is the other thing. Nobody knew how long this situation was going to go on for. And, uh, you know, it was a case of even once they came into Macau that they would have had to finance themselves. Yeah, and I think it's a real, it's a real trick sometimes when you're trying to write history to try and remember that people don't always know what the end of the story is, right? The, the, the Shanghai Jews didn't know that the Japanese would not hand them over to the Nazis to be murdered. But they knew the Nazis were asking the Japanese to do that. Um, they didn't know that eventually the war would end. Um, so, so people didn't, you know, don't always know what we know. Um, and in hindsight, maybe they should have just stuck it out where they were, uh, but, but they didn't see it that way. Um, and so they did have limited amounts of money. In Shanghai, times were hard, food was short, work was hard. Uh, it was a very competitive market, which is another reason some people moved on. There were a lot, there were 25,000 nearly uh, Jewish refugees in Shanghai, so things were quite competitive. They felt that maybe there would be opportunities in Macau, and of course they didn't expect to stay too long. Some thought that they would get to, uh, some that went in 1940 and early 1941, of course, thought that they would be able to get from Macau to British 
Hong Kong as a stepping stone. But of course, by Christmas 1941, that, that became impossible as well. So they were really stuck trying to make money, but there wasn't many jobs for them. Um, and they had to often fall on, on refugee assistance or just eke out what savings they had. So how did you track these various Jewish residents coming out of Shanghai? You've mentioned letters. What else? What was used in your research? Well, I mean, shipping records for a start are reasonably complete depending on what boats they went on. If they went on boats that were sailing that route by American lines or British lines, which were still going up and down the coast at some points. Um, we always think of people going on sort of tramp steamers between sort of Hong Kong, Macau and places like Shanghai. But actually the big ocean going liners often went from Hong Kong to Shanghai as well. And, um, you know, you could book yourself a berth on those for a couple of days as a sort of luxury break, luxury weekend break. Sounds quite nice. Um, so so they, they were able to do that. And uh, so those records exist. And, of course, there are records in Macau of them existing. Um, there are many memoirs of people talking about the fact that, uh, for instance, the one I use in the book is a small hotel there on the Rua de Campo in Macau, which was called the Aurora Portuguesa Hotel. And a number of people remember that. It was a real, for whatever reason, and I've never quite established it, it became a kind of clearinghouse for information and a place to stay for the Jewish refugees, many young men and, and women. There was a courtyard at the back where many people remember going out on hot nights for cigarettes and, and sort of chatting and gossiping and flirting. You know, these were mostly young, single people that made this journey. There's also letters, uh, some of them moved in different uh, relationships and so on. So there was actually some letters in the archives from the German Nazi officials warning non-Jewish German citizens not to enter into relationships with Jews and that this, this could lead to punishment and penalties by the Reich, even though they were in Macau. So they could track them in Macau? Oh, yeah. I mean, they were doing that in um, Shanghai as well. In Shanghai, whenever the Jews there put on a cabaret show or a song and dance show to raise money for Jewish refugees and raise awareness of what the Nazis were doing in Europe among Chinese people and among the foreign communities in China. The Nazi-run consulate in Shanghai would threaten them. And it was quite blatant threats as well. It was, um, we know who you are. We will find where your um, relations are in occupied Europe, the parts that we control, and we'll send them to concentration camps. Um, it, it was quite blatant. Um, and they did that in Macau uh, as well during the war. What a stressful life for these people, and, and ongoing for months and into years. You know, um, it, it's difficult to imagine uh, these days just how, you know, the daily tension. So I suppose, yes, if they had relief where they could uh, just gossip and flirt with one another, that would have been, uh, you know, perhaps a, a moment of temporary relief, really. Yes, refugee problems are a major, you know, situation of our time at the moment. Um, you know, I'm sitting here during the lockdown on the south coast of England and literally almost every day here on, on the beach at the end of my road, we have uh, inflatables, over, overfilled inflatables coming across from France and being apprehended by the Coast Guard and the Royal Navy, bringing in uh, refugees, people smugglers bringing refugees across. So this is all very contemporary in that sense. And many of these people are young people because young people have the... The, they don't have so many limitations on them. They can move around. They can take more chances. The sorts of work they can accept are very diff different and varied. Um, and so this is exactly what's happening uh, with these people. But remember, you know, all of these, they've already made a journey from Germany or Austria or some from Czechoslovakia or Poland to uh, Shanghai, which was an awfully long journey. I mean, they had to get themselves across to Trieste to get on boats in Trieste that then took six weeks to get to Shanghai. 
They've arrived in Shanghai, and yet they're then moving on again and looking from Macau to move on yet again right the way back across the world to, to Lisbon and to Portugal. Yes. No, it's incredible, really, just the, the geography that they were covering and the decisions that they had to make in very uncertain times. I'm talking with British author Paul French about Strangers on the Prior, a tale of refugees and resistance in wartime Macau. So we've been talking a little bit about the sort of research and, and the letters that you found, but um, can you give our listeners um, just a precy of what your story is about? Well, my story, as I say, is really about one young woman who's very typical of those that wanted to leave, who had come from Berlin with her family, moved as refugees to the Shanghai International Settlement and were settled there in Hong Kong, or what's sometimes called the Shanghai Ghetto. Both of her parents died in the tuberculosis epidemic that swept through Shanghai in, in 1941 that, that was a very serious epidemic. So orphaned and concerned about her future and not really enjoying life in Shanghai, she decided to move on to what was then known as the Oriental Casablanca, the neutral Portuguese colony of Macau, perhaps in the hope that she could get to British Hong Kong, or perhaps, of course, hoping to get to neutral Portugal and from there to America or Britain. It must be said that the British maintained a consulate in Macau uh, throughout the war. And after the fall of Hong Kong, that became the only functioning British consulate between British-controlled India and Australia. It was known as the Lone Flag. And they did give out to many of the Jews and other refugees that, that came through transit visas that would allow them to transit through Britain in the, in the intention that they could either transit through Britain to somewhere else or a British colony. So at that time, that would have allowed you to go through Australia, Canada, anywhere else that you could get. Um, and also that once you were in any of those places, you could apply for refugee assistance. So those were handed out which is, was a generous act in a sense, except there were no boats leaving Macau for Europe or Australia and so, or North America. And so um, they kind of ended up with these visas um, in, by the way, their cancelled passports, because after 1938, all the Jews living in Shanghai and, and elsewhere, in Hong Kong, Manila, elsewhere in exile uh, as refugees, of course, had their, their passports cancelled, not renewed. So they um, became effectively stateless citizens. One of the reasons they could go to Macau was that Macau didn't pay much attention to whether their, uh, fortunately didn't pay much attention to whether their uh, passports had been cancelled. And of course, they were able to get into Shanghai in the first place because it didn't have visa and passport regulations as strict as other places. Yes, you also talk about, um, before you go into your story, you actually talk about um, how Macau is regarded in, in literature around that time. So that was, as you say, an Oriental Casablanca, but it was also, it was conveyed as one place where there was neutrality. But you'd also had, you describe how you have all these different police, really, there. You, you know, you've got the Japanese Kempatai, you've got the Portuguese or the Macau police, so also some form of secret service from the Portuguese. So you've got all of these different entities all operating in this small enclave. Yes, I mean, Portugal had to tread a very careful line during World War II, um, both, both in Portugal itself and in its colonies. For instance, because uh, and it was not, never a guarantee that the Japanese would respect Portuguese neutrality. For instance, they didn't respect Portuguese neutrality over Timor, down at the end of Indonesia there, which was a Portuguese colony as well, because they thought that there were British and Australian troops there, and so they invaded that and took it over. They didn't invade Macau, but they kept a very heavy pressure on the Macau 
authorities, the Portuguese authorities there at the time, um, and were constantly arguing that, you know, they should not side towards the British, they should not, uh, you know, side towards America and various other places. So, and they were also in a very difficult position, which became very apparent in 1945, for instance, when because they had large supplies of petrol there, the Americans did actually bomb Macau to destroy the uh, fuel dumps because, of course, just to deny them to the, to the Japanese. So, so it was a very precarious position. And, of course, they did have the Portuguese colonial police operating plus a branch of the Portuguese um, Secret Service. But also, you know, that almost on one street, you had a British consulate, a Japanese consulate and a German Nazi controlled consulate. So they were there as well. So it was always it was also an island of great espionage with everybody watching everybody. And of course, after the fall of Hong Kong, it also became a place that people who were trying to escape from Hong Kong, I mean, Hong Kong citizens themselves, Chinese citizens trying to get out, but also those uh, British soldiers, uh, intelligence officers and individuals who managed to get out of places like Stanley Camp and so on. A number of those managed to get to Macau, as, as did those fleeing the Japanese in southern China around Guangdong and Guangzhou and also from the Philippines. Yes, yeah, so the British Army Aid Group was also active in Macau, as you say, spiriting out these people who had escaped. As you say, so many different things going on and that whole street of consulates, that's such an interesting and rather dangerous quirk of history. Do you have a special fondness for Macau? Well, I, I, you know, um, anyone who reads my work knows I have a special fondness for the slightly louche and the slightly criminal and, and slightly dodgy, really. I don't know what that says about me. But, <laughs> yes, I do. I mean, I think in the 1930s, Macau was this kind of uh, slightly forgotten backwater that just sort of sat there in the sun being known for opium dens and gambling houses. It didn't have the strategic importance and the sort of business sense of and, and military sense of Hong Kong. It certainly didn't have the vibrancy and modernity and size of um, Shanghai at the time. And yet in World War II, it becomes a sort of a vitally important strategic place. Now, Strangers on the Prior, a tale of refugees and resistance in wartime Macau. You've described how that started off as a short story for Cha, but it also has been featured on Radio 3 with you actually narrating it. Yes, I mean, they asked me if I'd um, lengthen it slightly, and I was getting new information all the time and turn it into sort of a four-part podcast, which which we did uh, play during the um, Phil Whelan's Morning Brew show. But um, it's up there on the RTHK podcast site if, if anyone's interested. But then more information came in, so I thought I'd put it together with some photographs and, and put that out as a book. And funnily enough, the moment I said I was doing it as a book, people ask you to speak at events, and all of a sudden, you know, when you do Q&A, someone says, oh, my mum uh, was in Macau. And in fact, I just recently, actually, as lockdown eased here, had a cup of coffee with a, with a family here whose mother was a Jewish refugee who managed to do this journey. She managed to get from Berlin to Shanghai, Shanghai to Macau, and then from Macau across to uh, Free China, which we can, we can talk about the resistance bit in a minute, but across to Free China and eventually uh, via uh, Chongqing to, to British India, from there to uh, England where she was given refugee status, met an Englishman, married him, had kids. I just met one of the sons, and she never really mentioned Macau. And in fact, when she died, they found all these pictures. And they thought, what is this? Is this mum on holiday in the Italian Riviera or the French Riviera or something? They thought it was the Mediterranean. Um, they didn't know Macau. They only had a slight inkling of their, of their mother's uh, journey through Macau. 
Now, you also, through the book, um, I mean, you educated me on geography because you also talk about um, a French colonial uh, small area that is involved, I don't want to give away all of the aspects of the book, but uh, is involved in this story in terms of a place that people can go to. Yes, I mean, I'm, I'm willing to give enough away as to say that, you know, the problem with men escaping from Hong Kong, who were very important men in terms of intelligence and the military and needed to get to, you know, where Britain was at the wartime Chinese capital of uh, Chongqing. It helped them to move through borders if they posed as married men. And there were a lot of um, single women who had very different sorts of passports and different sorts of um, accents and language skills um, that could accompany them and pose as wives. And I think that was quite an interesting thing. However, the main way that people went... uh, was through a French leased territory called um, Guangzhou One, which is now the Chinese city of Guangzhou One, which is just basically, if you think of yourself leaving Macau and heading across the Hainan Island, it is the port just round on the other side. The, the capital of the small leased territory was called Fort Bayard, which is now Zhengjiang and, and quite a sort of active port. It was very much a backwater then. As I say, it was a leased territory. It was a small piece of land that the French had leased, It was really just a port in China that was not far from their big French Indo-Chinese empire. So they had it. It became a total backwater in World War II. The Japanese didn't bother to invade it. The French governor was just sort of stuck there, not getting any orders from Paris anymore, really. But it was a way into China that involved avoiding the Japanese-controlled coast and getting yourself through a admittedly Vichy French, you know, collaborationist French-controlled port. But... Mostly you could turn a blind eye or a little bit of cash got you through there. From there, um, free China guerrillas, either communist or the non-communist ones, you know, the, the West River and East River brigades that were also, of course, operating in Hong Kong during the war, were able to get you on a long overland trek all the way up through to Yunnan province, which was in the hands of the nationalist China um, and where the um, Americans and British air forces were flying the hump, as it was called, across to India. So it was the way out. And that became a very active smuggling route for people and goods um, during the war. Yeah, fascinating. So that's the the resistance side. But as you say, one option for these women stuck in Macau was to then become part of this married for convenience couple in order to to help and facilitate everybody's move or escape to elsewhere. Now, your story is, as you say, it's, it's a shorter story, although it's expanded over time as you've gathered more information. But you say right at the outset that it's incomplete because you don't know the fate. Yeah, of one no, of the I mean... Yes, it's an incomplete story because I don't know I don't, I don't know everyone's story. I don't yeah. know how it ends for everyone. For instance, I, I do know from records that one of the Jewish young Jewish women from Shanghai, who is part of the composite character in the book, did through a marriage of convenience that had given her a neutral Spanish passport, accompany an Englishman who had escaped from Hong Kong and who spoke some Spanish, and they, they forged him some documents, and they posed as a Spanish couple got across to the French territory of Guangzhou and from there did manage to get to all the way to Chongqing after sort of a couple of months of walking at night across country. Now, he was a reasonably important person in terms of being having been in the intelligence services in Hong Kong. And so I have records of him arriving and reporting and being noted as uh, now registered in Chongqing. But her 
the record goes silent. There's no record that she actually made it, but there's no record that she didn't. And there's no record that, of what happened to her afterwards. She was seen as inconsequential. She was someone who could continue her journey by helping out this guy. This guy was important. His records survive. Um, she disappears from history at that point. In Macau, the wartime Macau that you describe also is, is a neutral one, but as you said, you've described to me, you know, as it's the centre of espionage and uh, all the complications of these different communities and also different security squads that are there plus resistance groups. But there were also some Macau players, let's say, or business people who did rather well out of a neutral Macau. Yes, I mean, there's always people who do well because there's always black markets and there's always people who profit and also... In order for somewhere to survive, perhaps people who bend the rules uh, sometimes are necessary. Certainly, the colony was largely run by a man called uh, Dr. Lobo, Pedro Lobo, who was born actually in the Portuguese colony of Timor, but came to Macau. And he ran it, basically working out what Macau needed to do to survive. And on the other side, uh, not to give the Japanese an excuse to invade completely and take over. And many people were involved in that project, and I suppose the one who's best known in Hong Kong and also worked for Lobo during the war is Stanley Ho, who recently died. Of course, the business and casino tycoon in Macau, um, originally from Hong Kong, of course, but went to Macau during the war and as a trader. And depending on how you want to look at uh, what he did during the war, you could see it as smuggling, black marketeering, profiteering, or you could see it as just, you know, ensuring that there was enough, particularly kerosene, rice, flour, sugar, and so on in Macau, not just to feed rich, wealthy people in Macau, but to go into the large refugee camps that uh, Dr. Lobo had, had to operate during the war. You know, there's been some interesting things. I myself wrote something on CNN for it uh, on their website about Stanley Ho after after he uh, died because, you know, he had so many, which he had talked about, fascinating stories about Macau during the war. I mean, he was out there on a boat, often sailing over to, to sort of uh, southern China, often around Guangzhou-Wen, where I was talking about, and he'd see a boat on the horizon, and he wasn't quite sure who it was, but down in the hold of the cabin, in the bottom of the cabin, he'd have a British flag, a Japanese flag, a Portuguese <laughs> flag, a nationalist Chinese flag. I mean, he had all the flags, and then he just had to work out which ship it was coming across, run up the right flag, and um, hope he didn't get sunk. And I think the skull and crossbones was one of those flags as well. So, I mean, you know, all sorts of, I mean, you have to remember, there's all sorts of, there's triads operating, there's pipe, just good old-fashioned South China pirates operating around there at this time as well. So um, there's, there's Chinese collaborating with the Japanese. There's Chinese fighting the Japanese. Some of them are nationalists. Some of them are communists. It, it's, it's a massive melange, really, of different interests and, and, and competing, profiting groups. Now, the Bella Vista, was that used by the Japanese during the war? Yes. I mean, the Bella Vista was... By and large, um, well, Germans, Japanese. And there was also, I mean, there's a lot of stories. Uh, and John Reeves mentions it as well, and other memoirs mention it as well, of um, various uh, wealthy Brits who, who came across from Hong Kong who stayed there as well. So, again, it's one of these kind of places. Like, uh, you know, I mean, if you think of Portugal during the war, we all know that Lisbon was this big centre of spying, and just up the coast of Estoril, we had the Duke and Duchess of Windsor and, and spies from all, all the different sides uh, meeting and talking, trying to buy bauxite and iron ore and do all these deals, and Macau was a slight Asian version of that. Interesting. <laughs> Very interesting over cocktails, I'm sure. 
Yes, I mean, there was there was always a lot of... Um, I remember someone who, who shall remain nameless, because a lot of people in Hong Kong will know them, who was, very, who was very clever and always used to do a lot of Hong Kong history, who once... I, I once said to them, like, you know, what's the, what's the book on Hong Kong that's never been written? I'm always trying to write the book on Shanghai or Beijing that's never been written, because that's my sort of thing. But, you know, what's the book on Hong Kong that's never been written? And he always went, it's the one about the people from Hong Kong who went to Macau and made a fortune during the war, and then after the war came back to Hong Kong and didn't say a word about it. My thanks to British author Paul French, providing a fascinating insight into wartime Macau and the Jewish refugees who went there from Shanghai. Paul French is the author of Strangers on the Prior, a tale of refugees and resistance in wartime Macau, published by Blacksmith Books. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.